Welcome to Slaking Thirst, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. Man, after some of those long Easter season gospels, that one feels like a blink. Did you catch it? Sheesh. Okay, again, before I say another word, I want to wish a very happy uh, Mother's Day weekend to all of our moms, to our grandmas, our godmothers, spiritual mothers, all who are here. Thank you, moms. Mom, if you're watching at home, thank you, mom. Love you. Okay, so let's get into this. So this past Thursday in my hometown in Hudson, I was on my day off, uh, a priest, a rabbi, and a Muslim leader all walked into a podcasting studio. And this is not a joke. This is a real story. <laughs> I have a buddy, his name is Chris Michael A. Uh, he hosts a podcast, it's called Three Questions, Three Drinks. He interviews some really fascinating people on his, on his podcast. It's got a real uh, growing audience at this point. Some great conversations, and as you might guess by the title of the podcast, each person is supposed to bring a drink, and there's questions, and you kind of talk as you sip on drinks, and it's, it's a really fun thing. So I've been on the podcast before, twice before. He invited me back to have a chat with... Uh, some gentlemen who come from very, very different faith backgrounds than mine, obviously, right? So we had Rabbi Michael, who's the rabbi at uh, Temple Beth Shalom in Hudson, and uh, a Muslim gentleman named Masrur Malik. Um, he's from Solon, really great guy, obviously very different uh, perspectives, but we all come from the three, we represent the three great Abrahamic faiths, right? Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, right? So the conversation was, it was awesome. It was a conversation where we talked about things where we are on the same page. I kind of shared a line from G.K. Chesterton, who's one of my heroes. He said that, you know, when a madman is at the door, feuding brothers reconcile, right? And I kind of just shared how with, with the rise of secularism, with the rise of kind of what we're seeing in the culture, there's a lot that we, we hold in common that we, we kind of reconcile on, that there's greater enemies at foot here. So it was, like I said, it was an awesome conversation, almost two hours. Masur, he brought this Pakistani tea. Rabbi Michael, he brought this, uh, I think it was like pomegranate juice. And I, being the Catholic, brought Irish whiskey. Um, and, and it was awesome. It was really, really awesome. So one of my, one of my takeaways, reflecting on the conversation, was uh, I had a greater grasp, I think, after this two-hour-long conversation with these gentlemen about how we think and relate to each other when it comes to just the worldviews, the worldviews, right? Like it has to do with, and it's this specifically, it has to do with how we think, how our tradition is the completion or fullness of revelation. This is what I mean. Like as Christians, we would say that the New Testament completes and therefore fulfills the Old Testament, right? That the Old Testament, what God began in the Old Testament in Israel, is brought to fulfillment, to flowering, if you will, in the Christian revelation, the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, so like, and that's why as, as Christians, we don't chuck out the Old Testament. We're not, you know, Marcians, those her heretics who say we don't need the Old Testament. No, we, we are the flowering out of the Old Testament. All right, Muslim brothers and sisters, this is what I understood from, from my brother Masur there. He was saying that the, the way they view Muhammad's revelation is that they see it as the continuation and the definitive interpretation of the Old Testament and the New Testament. We differ there, big time, okay? So before you write any letters to the bishop, just so you know, I'm a Christian, this is what I believe. Okay, 
It was very interesting, though. He shared some interesting things about how Muslims revere Jesus that the same way, similarly, I guess, in the same way that we as Christians would revere Old Testament figures, Moses, Isaiah, those kind of people, um, that Jesus is all over the Quran. I don't think I knew that really beforehand. And Rabbi Michael also, he had a great reverence towards Jesus, which I, again, thought was very interesting. No one denied that he existed. They just saw him, he saw him in specific as uh, a teacher in the same line as the Pharisees, right? A Pharisaic teacher. And they both kept referring to him uh, with great reverence, but as a great teacher, as a great prophet, even one of the greatest of prophets. And this is where, uh, this is where I pressed the issue. It might have been the Jameson, but this is where I pressed the issue. I was like, okay, so there's, there's a huge difference here in how you view Jesus and how I view Jesus. And it's this, that according to the Gospels, to the, to the source material where we learn anything about the existence of Jesus to begin with, according to the Gospels, Jesus isn't interested in his prophetic teaching, in his sermons, any of those things. He comes to the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asks his disciples the question, who do people say that I am? Right? It's not, what do people think about my teaching? How do they think my sermons are going? Are they landing? Am I using the right images? Like, what do people think about the content? That was not the question. The question that he asks is a question about his identity. Who do people say that I am? And that's what I was saying. I was like, Yes, Jesus was prophetic, and yes, he taught some beautiful, powerful things, but that's not the Christian claim. That's not the Christian claim. That's not what's at stake. What's at stake is who was he? Who is he? That's the claim. That's what's at stake. Was he God in the flesh or not? Because that makes all the difference. That makes all the difference. And I've been thinking about all this because, because of the readings that we have this weekend because if he is God in the flesh, then that means that my response to him is different than if he was merely a prophet or merely a very powerful, persuasive teacher, even one of the greatest of prophets. So Christianity, right? Christianity is not reducible. It's not reducible down to merely like morals or ethics. It's not reducible down to moral rectitude. Am I behaving well or even or piety? Am I praying well? It's not merely a matter of obedience to dictates from on high. You still with me? You tracking with me? I know this is a lot. We're good? Is the incense choking people out? You with me? Okay. It's not reducible down to merely morality or ethics. Like the response called for, if he is God in the flesh, the response called for is how can I get closer to him? The response is one of communion, one of closeness. How can I let him get closer and closer, deeper and deeper into my humanity? Like the shocking reversal revealed in the readings that we have this weekend that was, that was highlighted in my interfaith conversation is that the God that we worship, the God that's revealed in the New Testament, the God that's revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, says that I am the good shepherd, who lays his life down for the sheep. I mean, think about this for just a second. Like, try, try and take the Christian background out of, the Christian noise out of how you hear those words, right? Think of like, like what is a, a good beekeeper? Someone who's got a lot of bees 
and they take care of the bees, but they use the bees to get honey, right? Someone who's a good dairy farmer, they got a lot of cows, and they use the cows to get milk from the cows, or someone who's a good cattle rancher, they raise a lot of steers, they kill the steers, they slaughter them, and they get the meat from the animals, right? A good shepherd in Jesus' day is someone who takes care of the sheep, but then uses the sheep for meat, for products, for selling. He, gets, he uses them for himself. What we, what we fail to hear is the fact that our good shepherd says, I have come not to take life from the sheep, I've come to give life to the sheep. It's this unbelievable reversal that the God who's revealed in the New Testament is mostly interested in giving us something, not taking things from us. He's principally concerned with bestowing something on us. And, the some, and that something the Bible calls eternal life. Eternal life. We hear it in every single one of these readings. From the first reading, from the Acts of the Apostles, all who were destined for eternal life came to believe. From the second reading, from the book of Revelation, the one who sits on the throne will shelter them. They will not hunger or thirst anymore. No will the sun or any heat strike them. The Lamb who's in the center of the throne will shepherd and lead them to springs of life-giving water. From the gospel, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. All through these readings, eternal life. What is this eternal life business? It's one of those churchy words, those churchy phrases that until someone asks us, what does that mean? We all, like, we all know what it means. Like before I even brought it up, if, someone, like, if I just were to say eternal life, we all have like, oh, I know what that is. But then, like, well, can you explain it to me? Like, uh, no. What is this eternal life business? I think what a lot of people have in their minds, in the back of their minds, is that, that eternal life is the reward you get for having more good things in this life than bad things, right? It's the, it's the great cloud city, candy land of perfection and fun times that you get as long as the good things outweigh the bad in this life. And it's eternal, which means it just it goes on forever, and it's awesome, right? Apparently, right, that's, it just goes on forever and ever, like, and we're just there forever. When I think about that, when we actually think about that, that honestly actually is kind of repulsive. Like, I don't want, think about this, this might sound weird, I don't want, and I bet you don't want either, any of the heavens that any of us have ever thought about or anybody has ever depicted. I don't want any of those heavens. I want something so much more. I don't want any heaven that I've ever dreamt about forever. Like, do you know how long forever is? Like, forever. I want to wrap our heads around this eternal life business. Here's what Pope Benedict has to say. It's so helpful. He's, it's so clear. He says, the term eternal life is an inadequate term that creates confusion. No kidding. Okay. It's an attempt to give a name to that known unknown we all feel and ache for. Pause right there. That we all feel and ache for. This thing, this known unknown thing that we all feel and ache for. Maybe, maybe we do. Maybe, maybe we don't. Maybe... It's increasingly becoming the case, I think, many of us live very numbed out, distracted lives, and we just don't really feel our hearts ache anymore. But when we allow ourselves, when that moment bubbles up, when the ache and the, all that bubbles up, it's that ache for more love, more friendship, like perfect love, perfect friendship, endless love, endless friendship. It's the rebellion your heart feels every time you've buried a loved one, when your heart says, I don't want to say goodbye 
And you're like, well, that's stupid. Everybody dies. What are you like? Come on, heart, get with it. Grow up. Everybody dies. No, but your heart's saying, I don't want to say goodbye. I want, I want this to go on forever. But isn't that stupid? Because we all know it doesn't go on forever. We're all destined to die. So what is that? That known unknown in my heart that says, I want more. I want more hugs and more friendship and more love and more connection and perfect communion. All of those things. It's the thing that happens in your heart that bubbles up when you first smell in, that, in, in springtime, when you get that first whiff of fresh cut grass. It's like, oh, like what? It, what just happened in there, right? Maybe it's just me. Is it, is it just me? I don't think so. There's a thing, there's something that bubbles up when you're driving at night and the windows are open and you just all of a sudden smell like bonfires somewhere and it just comes in and like pierces you. These moments that you want to just freeze and lock in. Like, I don't want it to keep going. Let's just pause and stay right here. I'm thinking about right now at this mass tonight, we have a ton of our eighth graders from Sacred Heart School and their families. For after Mass, we've got this whole dinner and, and night of remembrance is kind of like beginning to say goodbye in this season of the journey, right? And like, I'm sure parents of eighth graders, there's a part of you that's like, I just, I, can we freeze? Like, time moves slower, right? I bet you when that slideshow starts going, everyone's like, <laughs> right? You're going to be feeling that ache tonight. You're going to be feeling it. You're going to be feeling it. We are this aching creature who senses deeply, I think we do, that this whole world is but a womb, and we're meant for so much more. So that biblical phrase, eternal life, Pope Benedict is saying, it's trying to name the thing that all of our hearts are looking for all the time when we're not numbed out, when your heart's awake and alive and longing and desiring. The Pope continues, he says this, Eternal suggests something like the unending succession of days as on the calendar. And the term life makes us think of our existence here and now. And so for many to think of the toil of this life continuing eternally seems more like a curse than a gift. But eternal life is not the endless succession of days as on the calendar but something more like, listen, the supreme moment of satisfaction in which totality embraces us and we embrace totality. It's the supreme moment of satisfaction and embrace of our infinite yearning like, uh, with infinite satisfaction. And throughout this life, we get little tastes of that Little moments where it just like, it seems like it perfectly corresponds. What, what Jesus is, what he's come to give us is eternal life. So back to my conversation, my interfaith conversation. I was so struck in the midst of this conversation by the thought that here are these guys, these, these men, these good men. Call, call them holy men. They're good holy men who have hearts just like mine. They yearn and they pine. They have hopes and dreams. They've got hopes for their kids and grandkids. They have hopes for this world. And they have desires. And probably just like all of us, they probably have stuffed those desires. And, I, and like, what just struck me in the midst of the conversation was the fact that I got to share with them that the most amazing thing about our faith, my faith, about Christianity, is that it's not that we have an amazing prophet who tells me what God has said, as awesome as that would be, 
or an amazing teacher who's showing me how to live, as awesome as that is. The most amazing thing is, like, that thing, that known, unknown thing that my heart is aching for, endless fulfillment, endless perfect beauty, endless perfect friendship, perfect love, perfect joy, that thing that I'm always wanting and always seeming to never get, that thing actually has come looking for me, looking for us. Like, I wanted to say to these guys, like, there, there is someone who corresponds to your heart's deepest yearning, and his name is Jesus. He's not just another teacher. He's not just another prophet. He says, he says my sheep hear my voice, says the Lord. To what end? So that he can tell us what to do? No. So that we can hear him say things like, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Little one, I adore you and I cherish you. You are precious to me and I see you. Come to me, all you who are weary, who find life burdensome, and you will find rest for yourselves. Come to me and I will satisfy your hunger. I will satisfy your thirst. Come to me and I will give you joy like you can't imagine. Come to me and let my love for you, a love that has like cross this horizon from infinite time and space to earth. Let my love for you transform you. I want you to just take a second. I want to invite you just to close your eyes, just to humor me for just a moment, because Jesus is saying, I'm the good shepherd, I speak, and my sheep hear my voice. So in the silence of our hearts, Jesus, good shepherd, we ask you to speak now. We are your sheep we're not your puppets, we're not your pawns, we're not your playthings. We are precious to you. And you know our hearts inside and out. You know our desires. And you came to meet us in those places to fulfill our hearts. So Jesus, in the silence, speak right now. Give us a word, an image, a phrase that we all might know. What it means to be held securely in your hands. That your love has come looking for us to fill and meet our hearts with that blessing of eternal life that begins even now.